This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before founding the International Justice Mission in 1997, Gary Haugen served as a civil rights attorney for the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and was then loaned out to be the officer in charge of the U.N. Center for Human Rights Genocide Investigation in Rwanda. While overseeing the operation, his eyes were heartbreakingly open to the appalling extent of violence in the developing world. Upon his return to the U.S., his experience led him to found IJM, an organization devoted to rescuing victims of global violence, including trafficking and slavery. If you're like me, the International Justice Mission is a nonprofit that you probably already know about and maybe even admire. And it's no secret that to this day, IJM continues to be one of the most powerful abolitionist voices in the world. And Gary Haugen, as their CEO, is at the forefront of all that they do. IJM is responsible for rescuing more than 45,000 people from slavery and other forms of violence and helping local authorities arrest more than 3,500 suspected slave owners and other criminals. And that's why I am so excited to have Gary on the podcast today. His story is incredible and his voice is one that I've turned to during my most cynical moments while pursuing meaningful work. He understands what it takes to do the hard work, to fight the bad guys, and yet still stay somehow hopeful of the future that we have ahead of us all. He's the author of several books, including Good News About Injustice and, most recently, The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. So we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. So let's jump straight into this conversation. I have a feeling that Gary's story and his wisdom are going to give you the hope that you need to keep fighting the good fight wherever you are and whatever you do. Gary, I am so honored to have you on the podcast today. I am a huge fan of your work and I feel like I have a pretty solid understanding of the things that you've written about in your books, about the global poor and the impact of violence and slavery on people in developing countries and the toll that trafficking takes on individuals. And we've shared a lot about the work that IJM is doing across our platforms and on social media and in our good newspaper. But what I'm really interested about in this conversation in particular is diving into who you are and how you ended up doing what you're doing. So thank you for joining me today uh, to kind of dive into your story because I'm so fascinated by the route that brought you to where you are today. Wow. Thanks for being interested. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we should start off by saying that what you're doing is 
really unique. You know, it, it's really remarkable, this organization you've started and the role you have within it. And so I want to c- kind of bring us back to the beginning and ask, <laughs> what did you think you were going to be doing when you grew up? Because I find it pretty unlikely that you thought that you would be doing exactly what you're doing today when you were a kid. Yeah, totally had no I- no idea um, what eventually emerged. But when I, I-, I was a a very typical sort of suburban California kid, the youngest of six. My dad was a doctor. We lived in a nice suburb and um, I loved football and I loved um, hanging out with my friends. Um, But I also, I did have a weird interest in history. Um, As a little kid, I loved the stories of Abe Lincoln and came across the story of Martin Luther King Jr. and so forth. So um I was really inspired by the heroes of history. And when I was little, I actually thought I would probably like to go into politics, which Mm. is pretty socially weird, like to be in middle school and to be, you know, thinking about going into politics. So um, I struggled to find friends who would associate (laughs) themselves with me. And so I was with a really uh, uh, irritating kid who's like always running for, you know, student body vice president or something like that. And, um, but when I got to college, um, I started to get so much more interested kind of what was going on in the broader world. It was the time of apartheid in South Africa. There was a famine in uh, Ethiopia. And so I was this California suburban kid who was sort of getting blown away by uh, a lot of the sort of suffering and, and pain in the world. And um, I was moved by that sort of stuff and, and interested in seeing, well, how could my life make a difference? And I think step by step, that's sort of how we got here. It's really interesting to hear that you grew up with such kind of a, a privileged experience. You know, I would imagine that you weren't that you weren't confronted with, you know, the injustices that you work in the world of. Um, on a daily basis. I was sheltered away from all that stuff, actually. Yes. How do you think that your first interaction with that, I guess, outside of books and history uh, came into play? I can honestly remember uh, walking to class in college. And I went to uh, college in Boston in in a more urban setting and seeing homeless people sleeping in the street um, as I was walking uh, to class. And there just were no uh, homeless people that I was tripping over on the way to my high school, right, in my mm, suburb. Yeah. Uh, so it was just actually visually and physically, oh, my goodness, there's a human being on the ground, um, hungry and cold. And then the, the question of, well, what is that about? What's my responsibility? Does it have anything to do with me? And um, as, a, as a college student, I, I think one of the wonderful things is you, you are sort of encouraged to look at the world and what's going on and ask questions. And so it, it was moving to an urban setting. And then it was having, you know, the regular things like speakers come to campus, um, uh, talk about human rights issues or movies I saw actually um, about the civil rights era, or I remember watching Gandhi and the story of uh, Indian independence and the the nonviolent struggle there. So all those things in that wonderful way, it's supposed to sort of start to um, mess up your, your the, the tidiness of your life. That was all happening for me as a college student. I love that. I love this idea of 
<laughs> messing up that tidiness of your life. I think that I had a really similar experience when I went to college. I went to a school right in the heart of downtown Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And so I was confronted with all of these things that I had never seen in my small hometown growing up. And though I'd heard of it and, and you know, I kind of had a theoretical understanding, you know, the moment that you, that you actually have a conversation for five minutes with somebody who's living on the streets, it completely changes the way, or at least for me, it completely changed the way that I saw the problem of homelessness. You know, all of a sudden it had a name and it had a story and it had parents, you know, it's really triggering. And so you're, you're going to college, do your ambitions start to shift or are you still kind of thinking you're going to go down the world of politics? Well, I actually had thought, um, I'm going to become a lawyer probably just in terms of you're thinking like career wise because yeah. you're in college. And so, um, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer, so, uh, maybe I want to be a lawyer <laughs> and, um, and as simple as that. And also these, Uh, taking off from what you were saying, these experiences while I'm in college, like actually working in a homeless shelter um, so that I actually, as you say, get to know the human beings who are not just homelessness, but that's actually a person. And of course I do it in all the awkward ways of a, you know, suburban kid who has no idea what he's doing. And, but all of the sort of grace of um, the people that I encountered there and the, the way that, you could just be kind. You could just um, be helpful to this one person that was in front of you that was in uh, a desperate situation. And so having it sort of become demystified as an, as an intimidating abstraction and realize, no, it's just about loving a human being that's right in front of you. And then it was this uh, sort of uh, crash of global events coming to a college campus, uh, apartheid protests on, uh, were a big deal on our, our, our campus. As I mentioned, there was this horrific famine in Ethiopia. And so that did start to turn my attention sort of more globally. And I, I knew enough about the way politics work that that's really about going back home and running for vice mayor and then mayor and then school board or whatever. And, and it's, it's really local, local focus. And I was getting more interested in stuff around the world. So I went to actually go uh, work with church leaders in South Africa on the apartheid crisis right after graduating from college, just as a typical kind of intern experience. And that, and that blew my world open even more. How long did you do that for? I was, I lived in South Africa in 1985 and 1986. Uh, Three days after I arrived, martial law was declared in the country. Oh my goodness. uh, Because everything was becoming so violent. So Again, you got a picture of this suburban kid from California <laughs> has now just been dumped in the middle of um, a, a martial law crisis in uh, a fight against this brutal racist re- regime. And Nelson Mandela is still in prison. It's illegal to say his name in a public meeting. Um, and, and there I am uh, right in the, the middle of it with church leaders like Bishop Tutu trying to figure out, well, how can we save our country from this uh, uh, injustice? So again, it, apartheid, instead of being a abstract system of injustice, you actually get to know the individual black South Africans who are being completely deprived of their rights and being treated, um, you know, uh, like they're not human beings and trying to ask the question, my goodness, how do I as a human being respond to this kind of suffering and where do I find hope and encouragement? And that was the journey for me. 
because this was one of your earliest efforts in that world of being confronted by a big issue, what, I guess I'm curious, like what the stumbling blocks were or what the process was of remaining hopeful and, yeah. you know, success oriented. If, if the goal of success is, you know, peace or reconciliation or whatever it is, how you were able to kind of keep that at the forefront of your mind and not let fear or cynicism yes. uh, start to beat you down because that's, I can't imagine being in the middle of that struggle. We all know how the right. story ends or at least where we are today, but you were in the middle of it. No, that's exactly right. And I was in, in some ways, the the darkest moment of it mm. because when I left in 1986, there was no one who thought that the, that there was any way that crisis was going to get resolved other than just a bloodbath. But 10 years later, less than that. Um, Nelson Mandela is uh, released from prison and he's elected president of his country and he's, he becomes this global statesman of hope and justice in the world. Well, what happened there? Well, um, I will say that I did sort of experience this insight to realize, oh, this is all about the struggle for hope. This Because the, the forces of evil and violence and injustice what they want you to do is give up. Um, and so the entire struggle is sustaining hope and a sense of encouragement together to keep struggling. And that's what I saw in inspiring people in South Africa is uh, many of them were inspired by their faith. And so they believed sort of in this God of history that actually was, was, uh, driving history towards justice. Um, there was this idea that if you look back over history, you actually see that the the oppressors and the, the, the tyrants, they get swept into the dustbin of history. And that, that sense of larger hope, but really what it came down to was we, we, we are sustained by a, a, a love for individual people. I'm not going to abandon that mother whose uh, son has been... Uh, illegally arrested and is being tortured in that jail, it's sort of indulgent to lose sort of hope around the abstraction when that son actually needs someone to stand up for him. So I think the focus turned to um, finding hope and motivation in serving the individual, helping a single person, and then secondly, doing this kind of work in community not doing it as a lone ranger off by yourself because you'll totally get exhausted and, and you will lose hope, but finding hope in um, the faith that you can muster in the individual love you can bring to bear and then finding the friends with whom you can do it together. Finding hope and motivation in serving the individual in community. That's, yeah, that's remarkable. And so, when you left South Africa, were we already on a hopeful trajectory or did you have to leave before you got to see shifts happen? Well, I had to leave before I saw very many shifts in the, the basic narrative of, of what was happening in South Africa. Um, but I came away actually encouraged that I could make a difference in individual lives because I Good. saw that it, even I'm a little volunteer intern over there, I was participating in community with others and I saw lives saved. I saw people who were released from uh, prison and torture. I saw people whose minds changed from racist attitudes to actually affirming the dignity of other people who weren't like them. So you could see these little changes and that 
the individual could have a role in that. And so then eventually I went to law school um, and wanted to get more equipped with sort of the professional skills of legal advocacy, went to go work for the Department of Justice as a lawyer uh, working on cases of police uh, brutality here in the United States. And again, it was this idea of, uh, I may not be able to fix everything everywhere, of course, but there's good that can be done in the world. And if I have the courage to, to look at what's hard, find friends and uh, with whom I can uh, uh, pursue justice, and I equip myself with some hard work with the skills to do my part, um, there's great joy to be found in this. Was that ever a struggle for you, leaning into the difficult things, actually focusing on the heartbreak in the world instead of veering off into optimism? There was this equation at some point that, that came together, Brandon, that, that connects, I think, to a notion of you, you just want your life to matter. I think uh, all of us have this very deep desire for our lives to actually matter and to make a difference. And I suppose what I found was the insight that, oh, if you go and stand along people who are hurting and in need, the care, the love, the effort, the work that you bring to bear on their behalf, it will actually matter. It will make a huge, a world of difference to them. By contrast, if I enter into the world of affluence and power, where people already have more than enough of what they need, and I had an education background and so forth that I could sort of pursue that, that world. Well, then actually what I bring to bear doesn't matter so much. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. These are people who already have so much abundance anyways. But what if you go along the person who's alone? What if you come along to that place of, of poverty and of hurt? And what if you bring a little bit of healing that's in your hand? Or you bring a little bit of encouragement or hope or kindness or love? Wow, that makes a big difference in the world of hurt and in the world of um, just loneliness where where the isolated many times are. And so I think, Brandon, even though it is it can be discouraging or hard or painful to be in that place of need, what I found was that um, the significance and difference my little life could make was infinitely more significant in that sphere. And so I just found meaning and purpose and joy in the midst of that, even though, yes, it was hard, but I would much rather have difficulty than easy meaninglessness. That is a good line. I think that's really, really good. And I, I, that's something that I know that our community is is really trying to lean into. And speaking of difficult things, I know that you know, pretty soon in the timeline of your life, you headed to Rwanda, uh, kind of in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. Can you tell me how you ended up having this, I want to say opportunity, but it's it's almost like that can't have been, obviously it was not an easy experience, yeah. uh, but how did you end up in Rwanda? Yeah, uh, well, the Rwandan genocide took place in the summer of 1994. And when it's over with, uh, the international community wanted to try to bring the leaders of that uh, genocide to justice. And so the UN doesn't have a full-time staff standing by to do genocide investigations. They ask the governments around the world, hey, can you um, send us some uh, people to uh, 
some professionals to help us do this. And so I was sent by the U.S. Department of Justice to the to the U.N. Uh, to be able to to lead the genocide investigation. And that was it was. Yeah, just an unspeakably horrible experience of getting handed a list of 100 different mass graves and massacre sites where nearly a million people had been butchered and to sort through that um, mess and try to develop the evidence so you could bring the, um, the perpetrators to justice. And I guess the, the deeper impact that that had on my life in a certain way, Brandon, was that it brought me face to face with the problem of violence, right? That, that there's all kinds of hurt and um, suffering in the world, but wow, there's something about the problem of violence that is devastating and brutal and just evil. And so out of that, I, and after the Rwanda genocide experience, I was focused on how can I make a difference in the world in just reducing the, uh, the, the amount of violence that those who are most vulnerable have to confront, especially children, especially women and vulnerable families who are most um, at risk of being hurt by bullies. Uh, that, that notion just really took hold of my heart. And, and, um, and that was a big part of, of coming out of that Rwanda experience. I just want this, the violence to stop wherever I can do that. Uh, where in places of most vulnerability, that that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. Directly out of that desire or that newfound purpose, is that where International Justice Mission came from, IJM? Exactly. So um, IJM uh, was founded just a little more than 20 years ago. And in the midst of a sort of global effort to address the different kinds of needs of the poor, and this was in the era when Bono and others were getting everybody excited about engaging the fight against poverty. And I wanted to be part of that fight too. But what I came to focus on was that the common poor person is not only afflicted or threatened by hunger or disease or lack of sanitation and dirty water, they are actually chronically vulnerable to violence. And I didn't quite understand this um, as powerfully until I, I I was on the ground in the developing world, and maybe some of your our listeners have, have been into the developing world. And one of the things that will be hard to, to see is the is the fact that most of the poor in our world, about two billion of them who live off less than two dollars a day, most of them live outside the protection of law. Uh, the, the UN did a study that came to that conclusion, said most poor people live outside the protection of law. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the, the picture of that came so clearly to me not too long ago when I uh, heard about this young woman in the state of Oregon uh, who was home alone one night in her house, and she lives in kind of a rural area, and her home is kind of isolated. And it was a dark Saturday night and she started to hear this man tearing his way into her house uh, and she's all alone. And so she's terrified, but particularly terrified because then she realizes this is the same guy who had put her in the hospital from an assault two weeks before. And now he's tearing his way into her house. And so she does what every American does. She picks up the phone and she calls 911. Well, I've listened to the audio recording of this 911 call and it's the most extraordinary thing, Brandon, because the 911 operator has to explain to this young woman that because of budget cuts in her rural county in Oregon, 
they don't have law enforcement available on the weekends. What? Only on weekdays. No. And so she's actually on the phone saying, I'm sorry, I don't have anyone to send for you. And eventually they have to just hang up. The man breaks into the house and horrifically assaults her. And I was just listening to this with my breath just stolen from me. I couldn't breathe. And I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, this is where two billion of the world's poor live every day. Yeah, because that's Oregon. But, you know, imagine living on way less money than rural poor Oregon. Oh, sure. And wow, even if you're uh, poor in America, uh, you have access to law enforcement generally. And but but most of the world's poor don't have access to law enforcement. What does that mean? It just means that bullies then can do whatever they want. And that is what happens. That's why, Brandon, we have 40 million people in slavery in the world today. We have uh, women and children in communities where up to 40% of them are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. They have their land stolen from them. I entered into this whole world, Brandon, of poor people who by the hundreds of millions are nonstop vulnerable to violence. And so this was the vision for IJM. How can we um, stand beside those who are most vulnerable to being assaulted, raped, enslaved, imprisoned, beaten, and, and abused? And it began, though, uh, by just doing one case at a time. And eventually, you know, now IJM has brought rescue to more than 45,000 individual clients wow, over the last 20 man. years. But it began with uh, just trying to help the one. I just wanted to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about the sponsor of this week's episode of Sounds Good, Schmidt's Naturals. Now, Schmidt's Naturals is on a mission to change the way you think about natural. They make deodorant, toothpaste, and soap, and I actually switched over to using Schmidt's deodorant about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, and I haven't looked back. I was tired of putting chemicals and aluminum in my armpits, and so I was really excited to put Schmidt's plant-powered formulas to use. My personal favorite deodorant is their charcoal and magnesium. It genuinely keeps me from being stinky and sweaty all day long, which isn't necessarily the experience I've had with other natural products. So I'm really impressed by Schmidt's. And the cool thing is for listeners of Sounds Good, Schmidt's Naturals is offering free shipping when you use the code GOOD at SchmidtsNaturals.com. You can go to SchmidtsNaturals.com today and use our special code GOOD to get free shipping and to help support this podcast. Schmidt's Naturals. Smell good, do good. <laughs> that is, that's a good tagline. Okay, now back to the rest of this conversation. So I wrote this down. IGM does three things. They, one, rescue victims. Two, bring criminals to justice. And three, then support and empower survivors. And in the early days, was this the model from the very beginning? Or is it something that you kind of evolved into? And then also, why this model? You, I feel like you could have just picked one of these things, uh, totally owned it, and then 
you know, allowed other people to take up these things, but instead you've decided to take a really holistic approach to the entire process. Uh, tell me about this model. Well, and in fact, uh, just as you suggest, when we started, uh, we were actually mostly focused on the first two things. That is rescuing victims out of abuse. So rescuing kids out of the brothels where they're being serially raped by sex trafficking or rescuing the family out of a brick factory where they're slaves or rescuing that widow who's being thrown off her land by that mob with uh, machetes. So rescue them and go after the bad guys, make sure that they're brought to justice because we were law enforcement people and prosecutors and so on. This is what we knew how to do. We actually had to develop over time this capacity to provide great aftercare for the survivors. But we, we learned over time that that's absolutely necessary. You don't to rescue somebody out of this kind of trauma and not give them high quality aftercare so that they can actually uh, be restored as a human being, your rescue is not worth all that much if that's not done. So you kind of start to develop a more holistic approach as you see the holistic needs of, of the individual. And now we've really added a fourth step, which is to say, we're gonna actually work to transform that local justice system so it does the job of protecting the poor from violence so they never have to get rescued in the first place. So we've evolved to doing the hands-on rescue, yes. Sending the bad guys to jail, yes. But now providing some of the best aftercare in the world for survivors. And now protecting, we're helping to protect almost 150 million people through the justice systems that we are helping to transform in these communities. So that's the, the miraculous kind of larger impact of when you start with the individual and you just keep trying to do that, which cares for the whole human and, and looks after the needs of the community, it moves you to actually transform systems. Oh, that's so good. And that, I mean, that's what gets me really excited is, you know, hearing the individual stories, the individual impact, and then, being able to zoom out or in some ways kind of zoom in and say, okay, how can we attack this entire system to even eliminate the need to have these individual stories of people? You know, what if one day, we, you know, we put ourselves out of business because we've just dealt with the entire system? Well, you know, to break in, that is the amazing good news um, is that we've actually now worked ourselves out of business in some places. And it's, in, in Cambodia, for instance, we no longer have our office uh, doing child sex trafficking work because the child sex trafficking has been reduced by more than 80% in that country. Wow. And the Cambodian government is doing an excellent job of addressing it themselves after 10 years of IJM's work. So it's actually possible to work yourself out of a job. You can feel completely overwhelmed by what you see at first. But what I would want to share with everybody is our experience is that things change in the world. The bad guys are just um, waiting to see if, if we'll give up and if we'll go away. And if they figure out we're not going away, they're the ones that actually just stop abusing people. I, that's, like, I just got goosebumps. And it's, it's really encouraging to think about it is this almost uh, this competition of, hey, who can outlast the other? And, yes. you know, where injustice thrives is where the good guys can't hold out long enough. What would you say that it is that that is allowing IJM and, and similar people making a difference in the world to 
to actually have the persistence and the sense of hope to stick around longer than the bad guys? Where, like, where do you think that's coming from? Maybe as I mentioned at the beginning, Brandon, it's a little bit of a recognition, first of all, that that is the fight, that the fight isn't to win every time you go into the arena. It's to understand that getting back up, even after you uh, suffer a defeat is what in the long run allows you to, to triumph. These are all sort of trite things to say, you know, it's not, you know, whether you fall down is whether you get back up and stuff, but it turns out the trite things are actually true. And um, that's what we have experienced is in the early days, we failed just over and over and over again. And it, it would be very discouraging. And in fact, what we would tell ourselves is, well, every time we run at the problem, we learn something we didn't know. I mean, that, that was about all you could extract from the, uh, from the experience. But now, 45,000 times later, we've seen tremendous uh, that, that success is possible, but it, it comes from not going away. And, how, and what allows you to not go away? Again, it's, it's coming back to that community of friends. Because on one day that you're weak, your friend is strong. And when he's weak, you can be stronger for her. Uh, I mean, it goes back and forth. Um, and so I think doing it com- in, in community uh, is critical. Um, not getting lost in the abstraction. So slavery is an abstraction. But what we're talking about is assisting individual men, women, and children who are enslaved. And when you stay focused there and you see how hopeful it is for them, it turns out you actually can start to eliminate slavery from whole communities and and whole countries. But you get there uh, by staying focused on the individual and not losing that passion to keep going, which is about love, right? It's about we don't want to be given up on, right? We, when it starts to get hard with us, when it starts to get um, complicated and difficult, we don't want people to abandon us. So love's just about doing for others what you would want done for yourself. And so I think that's where how we stay motivated uh, as well as to say, we can't do everything in the world and we're going to face some defeats, but we are going to uh, not go away for this person because this is not an abstraction. This is a a woman we've gotten to know. This is a family that we've come to love. This is a a father who deserves our best efforts. And that helps you to keep getting up in the morning for sure. I will also say there's the completely underrated value of having fun. That is to say of stop working hard uh, and um, wallowing in all of the darkness 24-7. Take a break. Take a rest. Have a Sabbath, eat a great meal, go laugh with your friends. There's no other way to do it than to be actually very disciplined about finding joy. I was just talking with the team this morning about the way that joy is the oxygen for doing hard things, that we have to continually uh, return to our own sources of joy with our friends, with beauty and nature, with exercise, with great food, with music and art, because that's what allows you to do it for the long haul. Um, When I get on an airplane, they always say, uh, secure your own oxygen mask before assisting others, right? Because 
they they know that it sometimes takes a long time to to assist someone. And if you don't have your own oxygen going, you're, you're going to pass out and you're not going to help anybody. And it's likewise in the fight for justice that we need to actually secure our own access to joy in our own life so that we can be in it uh, for a, what's going to be a marathon, lifelong fight for justice. I think that's a really good reminder. And I know for me, sometimes I get so focused on the issues that I almost feel a sense of guilt if I if I opt out for a moment to have fun or have a positive experience or whatever it is. And so it's really encouraging to hear you say that, you know, it's, it's important to have those experiences. And I was actually uh, in Nashville at this event where uh, Congressman and civil rights hero, John Lewis was speaking. uh, And he was telling this beautiful, powerful story of how during the civil rights movement, you know, they would go out to the club and they would go dancing and, you know, they would drink, you know, wonderful drinks and they would uh, celebrate and, and just laugh and, and enjoy company with, you know, all these people that I read about in history books. These, you know, it's him and Martin Luther King and so many other people, uh, but they're in the middle of this fight, in the middle of this struggle, still uh, making time for joy. And, you know, one of my favorite activists, Brittany Packnett, constantly comes back to this idea that, you know, joy is resistance and uh, that joy and hope are are the key parts of how uh, we actually make a difference in the world. And so thank you for uh, reminding me of, of that, because that's, that's something I need to lean into more and I want to lean into more. Well, and I, it's a struggle because compassionate people are going to feel the the pain and suffering of others. And then they're going to feel conflicted about, well, how can I then be happy if, or how can I experience this joy or this good wine or this happy day or, and we can start to feel guilty around that. But whatever I could ever say to encourage people to just let that go, that is just a horrific lie that would leave us just exhausted and abandoning the battlefield one day. I remember very clearly being with Archbishop Tutu in the, in, during the worst days of the apartheid struggle in South Africa. And the thing that you would be most sort of impressed by if you spent any time with, with, with uh, Bishop Tutu was his laugh. <laughs> That's what I remember more than anything about Bishop Tutu is his laugh. I can picture in my mind him wading into a crowd when a man was being burned to death and rescuing that man out. So I can totally picture uh, Bishop Tutu with the, with the most incredible courage you could imagine. But what I also equally uh, can see in my mind's eye and feel in my heart is that the thing that allowed him to have so much courage was that he would run to joy and laugh with his family and his friends and with his community. And that allowed him to be in it for the long haul. I'm really, really grateful for the work that you're doing. Uh, and, you know, before we go, I was, I was hoping that, you know, a minute ago you talked about the stories of the individuals are what keep you going. And I was wondering if you could tell me a story of an individual that keeps you going, you know, something that is someone or somebody's story that just continues to motivate you. There's so many that over the years, but I was just with a young woman not too long ago Uh, from the Philippines named Cassie. She was taken into this 
ugly darkness that is now threatening many poor communities in the developing world, which is the, the, the new ugliness of, of cyber sex trafficking, where these little kids in very poor families are snatched away and put in front of a, a webcam and abused so that pedophiles and uh, sickos from around the world can can pay to direct their their abuse. It's the most it's the ugliest thing you could possibly imagine, Brandon. And poor Cassie was abused in these ways. And I just could not imagine uh, what she went through. And before I met her, um, I had read her case file and I was aware of what she had been through. And I knew that I was going to be meeting with her. And so, of course, I had this uh, uneasiness of, oh, my goodness, what's this going to be like to, to try to share a moment with this uh, uh, young lady who was uh, assisted by IJM and our aftercare team had been with her for, for years. And um, I was finally going to have a chance to, to, to meet her. And the truth is, I just met a young woman uh, shining with life who could look me in the eye and with a smile tell me with tremendous hope about her future. And to see not only did she survive that experience, not only did she struggle through seeking to bring her uh, abuser to justice with the help of IJM and the government authorities, but what I saw her do shortly thereafter, after I got a chance to meet her, was stand up in front of 2,000 people and rally them to hope out of her story of how, yes, the evil is dark, but it's possible for all of us to raise our voice and make a difference. This was just a teenage girl who has been through the worst possible experience, but is now actually helping lead her country to defend its children against these kinds of abuses. And I don't know, Brandon, it's, um, it is profoundly inspiring to me to see that the courage, the resilience, the selflessness, the joy that pours out of these survivors who now want to leverage all of that to be able to protect others from this kind of abuse, where Cassie herself is reaching for that significance that her life would matter um, by going and standing with those who are in need. That's amazing. And I love the way that this just comes full circle. I want to finish with, uh, with one last question one of the central themes of our conversation today has been this idea of hope uh, and how we all can play a part with our sense of hope in creating a better world. And in regard to the world of poverty and violence, what is your hope for where the world will be at the end of your life? You know, when, when you're in your final days, like what, what is your hope in coming from a, a place of uh, being realistic, you know, what's your realistic hope on on where the fight against poverty and violence will be? You know, I have tremendous hope, Brandon, because of the changes I have seen in the world just in my lifetime. And it, it's hard maybe for younger listeners to appreciate that when I was in my 20s, there were two of the most devastating problems in our world that got the most attention that got 
uh, most attention in the bad way, in the sense of so much despair and 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 fear and terror wrapped around and evil wrapped around two things: um, the apartheid system in South Africa and the brutalities of totalitarian communist uh, systems in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, where really just the lives of, of millions of people were being crushed. And no one saw how those two ugly systems would ever um, be overcome. And yet now those are just completely chapters in a history book. Those evils have been swept into the dustbin of history. And I can remember being in my 20s and never being in a, ever being able to imagine that that kind of human suffering and evil would, would be brought to an end. So one of the things that I just have the benefit of now of being a little bit older and seeing the world actually does change. Um, slavery can end, for instance. I truly believe, Brandon, that this is the generation that is alive right now that could actually see the end of slavery. Mm that there are more people in slavery than ever right now, but this is actually the one moment in, in history for the first time when it could be eliminated because there's a lot of reasons for it. It's illegal everywhere now. Uh, it's concentrated in a few places. We now can measure it. We found the vaccine that gets rid of it. Um, all those things are, are, are true. But what it also just manifests is that, is that um, the world can change. And we just can't lose sight of that. Poverty has been, extreme poverty has been reduced. When I was in high school, and that may seem like a long time ago, but that was about 30 years, a little more than 30 years ago, when I was in high school, nearly 50% of the world's population was living in extreme poverty, 50%. Now, in our era, we are down to 15% living in extreme poverty. Well, that's 15% is still way too, too much, but we should not lose sight of the reality that the world changes and, it wor and the world changes when individual people find their friends and they hold on to the hope together and they do what they can do for the human beings that are right in front of them. Man, everything Gary just said in this conversation is something that I'll probably put on my fridge or right on my walls of my office so that I can always turn to them when I need them. I am just, I'm struck by how Gary lives with such hope and joy and optimism in the midst of doing work that allows him to encounter so much darkness, evil, and injustice. I'm never going to forget what he said about how joy is the oxygen for doing hard things. And I think maybe we all need to remember that truth. You can connect with Gary on Twitter. His username is at Gary Haugen. And you should absolutely check out all of the work that's being done by the International Justice Mission through their website, IJM.org. You can also follow them at, at IJM on Twitter and Instagram. If you haven't already read one of Gary's books, I highly recommend checking out The Locust Effect or The Good News About Injustice. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversation with Firuze Mamoudi and Jonathan Moya, both individuals who challenge the people around them to see the world differently and take action that makes a lasting impact. 
You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered to your phone while you sleep. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by just telling a friend about the show. We always love it when people tag us in Instagram stories and when we see tweets uh, with our name pop up. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Chrissy Karenbrock offers production support. This is actually Christy's last episode with Good Good Good. We are so excited for everything she has ahead of her and wish her all the best. Christy, thank you so much for the impact you've had on this podcast and everything we do with Good Good Good. If you want to learn more about Good Good Good, you can follow us everywhere at Good 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 CO and visit our website, goodgoodgood.co. We create a beautiful print newspaper filled with good news, a weekly good newsletter that shows up in your inbox every single Tuesday, and you're listening to our podcast right now. All of that and more at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and remember that we need joy in order to sustain the ability to keep doing the hard work of changing the world for the better. Sound good? Sound good? 